0: Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at fia.org but in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan.
1: Welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. In this episode, we are honored to have IOSCO Secretary General Paul Andrews with us today. Welcome, Paul, to FIA Speaks.
2: Thanks, Walt. It's, uh, it's good to be here, and thanks for having me.
1: No, absolutely. Uh, well, with our coronavirus outbreak, it is a sign of the times that we're recording this podcast remotely between Washington D.C. and Madrid, Spain, where ISCO's headquarters are. Uh, this is the first time we have done this remotely, so Paul, we appreciate your flexibility and patience as we do this.
2: No, no, it's my pleasure. We're uh, we're getting more and more used to these types of things, uh, given given the situation. So it's uh, it's it's uh, becoming old hat.
1: Absolutely. Well, Paul, um, we hope your family and and all your ASCO staff members are doing well and safe uh, during this environment. Uh, But before we dive into our questions, give me a sense. uh, We're all adjusting to working from home um, and how our organizations are functioning in a different way than we were five weeks ago. Give me a, a sense of how your daily life has changed compared to five weeks ago.
2: Well, it's, it's been, it's been very interesting, I guess, to say the least. And, and maybe I'll, uh, I'll just give you two examples of how things have changed pretty significantly here. Uh, One is sort of, I would say on the, on the personal side where, you know, we're on pretty much a complete lockdown, which means that, uh, you know, you're really not allowed out of your home uh, except to go to uh, the grocery store or the pharmacy or to walk your dog. And that's really about it. And so being confined, you know, inside uh, 24-7 is, uh, pretty much 24-7, Is uh, has been a big, big adjustment, not only for me, but I would say for for my colleagues at IOSCO. So just sort of the, uh, the social life and those kinds of things have changed, you know, I would say pretty significantly. But the other aspect, it, it, you know, on the work side, uh, the work hasn't really slowed down. Um, but what's been interesting for me is, you know I've never been a very tech savvy person. but I would say in the last five, six weeks, I you know I'm using tools like Zoom, like what we're doing now through Microsoft teams, through through video chats on something we we, we use here in Madrid called Blue Jeans. And so I've become much more uh, technically uh, competent, I would say. Than than I've had to before, and uh, it's a shame. I, it took me so long, and it took a crisis to do it. But it, but it really shows how much you can do with technology today, and that's it's actually reassuring in many many ways. So those are just a couple of examples how, of how things have have changed in the day to day life uh, of, of of not only me, but I would say my uh, my colleagues at IOSCO as well.
1: Well, I'm lucky to have a few tech savvy teenagers in my house right now. So um, it it has been a masterclass on trying to learn Teams and and Zoom and other devices of trying to to work remotely. So uh, we're all going through it. Um, For those who don't know, IOSCO stands for the International Organization of Securities Commissions, uh, which is the global standard setting body for market regulators. Uh, you know, regulators like the SEC or the CFTC in the United States or the FCA um, in, in, in London are, are members or the Hong Kong uh, regulatory authorities are members of your organization. And Paul joined IOSCO in March of 2016 after spending over two decades as a frontline regulator, first with the SEC and nearly two, de- two decades with the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, Finra, which is the self-regulatory authority in the United States for the securities markets, but now, Paul, you sit as Secretary General to the markets regulators, equivalent of the United Nations. Um, How did your prior experience as a frontline regulator properly prepare you for this role?
2: Well, you you mentioned Walt. uh, You know the time uh, that I spent uh, at the SEC and and also at Finra, and and I actually think both of those. helped me in, in, in innumerable ways. And, and, and at the SEC, where, where I spent my time there was really in uh, what was the Division of Market Regulation at the time and now called trading and markets. So, so there I was really uh, able to, to, to come to understand I, what I would say the nuts and bolts of the cash markets in particular. And many of the issues that uh, I was dealing with at the SEC are really key issues for IOSCO today. So sort of having that foundation was actually really helpful uh, to to, to get me to where I am today. And then at FINRA, that that also helped a great deal because there I I really ran the international operations uh, of the organization. And so uh, from an international perspective, I was able to see a number of the the issues, not only from FINRA's perspective, but also from an international point of view. And and, in that role, it, it actually gave me the opportunity to meet a lot of people around Around the world and in the, the global regulatory community, not only at IOSCO but on a country-by-country country basis, and having those relationships was uh, a great help to me uh, when I came to uh, to IOSCO four years ago. So, so yeah, I would say my prior experience was was invaluable, and uh, really wouldn't be here today, I don't think, without it.
1: Is there anything about the new job that surprised you that you weren't prepared for, or? Um, you know that uh, you're having to exercise growth and and new skills that maybe you weren't doing in your other job.
2: Well, the thing that that perhaps surprised me the most, and and I don't know why it surprised me, but it did, was I would say the uh, the breadth of the issues that we have to deal with at IASCO uh, on a on a day to day basis, um, and, and and the international organizations that we have to deal with. So you know, in my prior world. I'm learn- I, I never really had to do too much with issues around central counterparties or issues around trade repositories or things dealing with margin. And so, so it, it has been in some ways also a good learning experience to think through some of these other issues and how they interrelate to the things that I did know. So it's the breadth of things that I think has really surprised me more than anything. Um, and uh, having been now on the job for four years, uh, I guess you, you never say you you won't be surprised by anything. But uh, there are new things coming up every day, and uh, and and that's the beauty of this type of job as well. Well,
1: let's dive into that agenda a little bit. You you touched on a few things, but tell us, you know, how does IOSCO approach its, its agenda? How does it set its priority? And importantly, how has the recent COVID nineteen affected that agenda? So if you could walk us through a few of those agenda items
2: sure I'd be you know I'd be happy to I mean one of the one of the good things that I think we've done as an organization over the last couple of years has really revamped the way we go about setting um, our our agenda and our priorities and 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 we used to do it uh it through uh, what we call the strategic direction which was essentially a five-year plan and um you know the way markets are today and the dynamic nature of markets The moment you finish a five-year plan writing it it's almost obsolete so what we've done now is we we do this on a yearly basis and it's through a vehicle we call our risk outlook which is something that um, we put together every year which gets presented to the board and then the board uses that as the vehicle to set its priorities from uh, on a year-to-year basis And and it helps us i think be be much more flexible and nimble and being able to adjust to uh to market conditions. So so maybe I'll just give you a, a, a quick example of, of, of some of the things that we set out to do in 2020, and then how that's been turned a little bit upside down to some extent by, uh, by COVID-19. But but I should start with just um, letting you and, and, and your listeners know just where, where we begin. And we be, begin with what I ask those core objectives are. And they're very simple, and they're three it's it's about investor protection number one it's about fair efficient and transparent markets number two and it's about how we can contribute to the reduction of systemic risk number three and so everything we do we try to build off of sort of those three core objectives so for 2020 for instance we set ourselves sort of six general priorities and i won't go into any detail about them but let me just list them for you because many of them will be familiar to you and 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 to your listeners as well because they're relevant to to all of us in some ways the first is around crypto assets and all the issues dealing with crypto assets issues dealing with uh, artificial intelligence machine learning how that's impacting markets the third priority was was around market fragmentation and particularly around harmful market fragmentation and what we can do about that The fourth uh, priority we had set was around passive investing and index investing and and how this is impacting uh, market structure and and the markets, I would say, more generally. The fifth uh, area was was about retail distribution and the digitalization of the markets today, particularly on the retail side. And then we added another priority this year on um, examining leveraged loans and collateral loan obligations. And particularly from a from a market conduct uh, point of view, so so those were the priorities. But we, we, we've been doing a lot of other things as well on sustainable finance, on fin issues around financial stability. But but those were the six key things that the board uh, said: this is what we're going to focus on. Well, uh, then came along uh, COVID nineteen, and I, I would say that that did pretty significantly upend the agenda that uh, we had set for ourselves. And it it was really around, you know, a reprioritization. And so we had set a number of work streams uh, in train under those six priorities. But with COVID-19, what we really had to do was was stop and take a look back and look at um, the key issues that COVID-19 is raising. And for us, it's really around two or three things. It's about how is market-based finance uh, being impacted, particularly around all of this heightened volatility that we're seeing and uh, issues around uh, liquidity as well. So it's sort of these market issues that are really focusing our time. And then looking at um, things that are impacting pro-cyclicality, things like credit rating agents, uh, credit ratings, and how they uh, are going to impact the markets when we we're going to start to see downgrades uh coming in the not too distant future so it's it's things like that that we we've just pivoted to focus on and, and specifically around investment funds or issues about margin clearing and other types of uh you know real day-to-day impacts that the markets are having because of COVID-19. I hope that I hope that helps No, that
1: definitely helps. And, you know, there's a lot of things we can we can dive into here as we do that. You know, what is your general assessment? I think, you know, if I were going to as an ex regulator myself, if I were going to say, you know, how has the market fared? um, I'd say pretty darn good. I mean, not that there are issues that's been raised, but given the extreme significant volatility that we're seeing, um, you know, you would expect problems. Um, and there have been. But for the most part, the markets have done what they've they've been asked to do, discover prices, manage risk, raise capital during a, a time of need. But I'm just curious, from your standpoint, you're closer to this than I am. What What's your overall assessment?
2: Well, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I think uh, we have come to the conclusion that clearly uh, there has been a lot of stress in the markets, a lot of strains. But you're right, the markets have performed. And when i look at uh, particularly in the investment fund side you look at the 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 liquidity spikes and and all the volatility most uh, you know investment funds were able to meet redemptions you've seen some inflows in some funds i look at the uh, the central counterparties and they've had to issue margin calls but by and large those have gone without a hitch gone off without a hitch and i do think that we have to be pretty grateful and and, and proud that uh, Markets are doing their job when it comes to uh, using you know being a safety valve or or, or or that kind of thing to help relieve some of the stresses and volatility in the market. But uh, no, we're we're pleasantly surprised that things have held up pretty well and
1: how how does Iasco uh, play a role during a stressed environment? I know, you know, your, your typical role in, in normal times is setting standards and helping get consensus among r- market regulators and raising uh, global benchmarks. Um, but are, are you playing a communication facilitation role to, to bring people together? You know, we're seeing different policies being implemented uh, on markets, such as the short selling bans in some jurisdictions and not in others, so how how are you playing a role during these stress times to to help to facilitate conversations among regulators?
2: Well, I mean, one of the things that we're doing is um, uh, we're playing, I think, a very, very central role in uh, information sharing about this crisis. And uh, you know that sounds pretty simple and pretty straightforward. But honestly, it's it's a crucial component of 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 this crisis because, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, regulators are taking action uh, at a global level. Uh, I, I mean, sorry, at a domestic level, and trying to have some level of consistency across the world on some things is, is not always easy. But but one of the roles we play is that we do bring all of those market regulators together, and we've we've prepared and and, and put in place during this time sort of a, a COVID-19 information sharing repository, which is available to uh, IOSCO members where they can see what their colleagues are doing around the world, particularly when they are thinking about taking action in, in an area, then they can see the experience. And we also have a, a, a piece of that repository that also is about the effects. So we, we a jurisdiction may have taken an action and they may have seen the impact or the effect of it. And that's part of the repository so that others can can learn from that but but i would say in addition to that i mean we're also collaborating i think pretty closely with some of our sister uh, standard setting bodies to to provide whatever relief we can when it comes to uh, uh keeping the focus on on the on the covid 19 crisis and so just Quickly, an example of that is, you know, we, we issued a statement with the, the Basel Committee in early April, where we, were, where we agreed that we would delay the, the implementation of the final two phases of uh, the margin requirements. And, you know, we think that doing those kinds of things is, is a crucial response in a crisis. And so it's, it's, it's multifaceted, but it's also, uh, you know, trying to be practical as well. Because we see the stresses, and we know market participants in particular need a little bit of help.
1: I did, I did notice that uh, IOSCO during the, the the height of this crisis on April eighth, you know, they delayed and reprioritized several of the the work streams that they were working on during the COVID nineteen. And I personally think that's the right decision. Just was this controversial at all to push some of those work streams forward? And when do you think you can get back to sort of business as uh, the normal business that you're working on on uh, some of these work streams?
2: Well, the the you know I have to say the decision was was really not that controversial, uh, you know to be honest with you because the way we approached it is you know we said and 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 you, you, you know you probably saw in the statement that we issued I mean we laid out some principles that we were going to follow about how to go about doing this and 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 once we came up with the principles, it was actually fairly easy uh, to come to the conclusion that um, the crisis has to be sort of the first priority. And that's where we need to focus our time and attention and, and do things to alleviate some of the stresses on uh, in the crisis. So no, it really wasn't controversial and there was a lot of camaraderie and and good discussion among the, among the board in, in coming to that conclusion. You know, I would say it, it, it's always hard to tell uh how this uh uh, how COVID-19 is going to continue to develop or whether we're going to uh find a cure or or whether there will be new spikes but assuming all things being equal our our sense is that we're probably going to become more normal uh in terms of operations probably in about four to six months is our is our hope and that's what we're sort of working towards where projects that were delayed will pick up again and and then we'll sort of get back to business as usual.
1: Well, one of the topics that uh, was not delayed was on deference and the concept where regulators defer to each other, others' rules if they are comparable. You know, IOSCO has a history of helping the development of cross-border uh, regulatory uh, concepts like like deference and and mutual recognition. Um, so can you describe a bit of the role ASCO plays on this regulatory deference and what, where do you, you hope to take that? Uh, we are in the midst of, uh, you know, with, the, with Brexit and the UK leaving uh, the European uh, you know, uh, Union, that, uh, th- that this is going to be more important, more heightened, and um, just curious how you guys are, are doing on that work.
2: Well, what we what we we started this work about a year or so ago in response to the uh, to the japanese g twenty presidency. and and it was interesting because at that same time, we independently as a, as as an organization decided this was really something we should also pick up as a uh, as an issue because it is certainly something that's impacting markets uh, worldwide. And so you know our approach to this has really been, not to, not to get involved in the should you defer or should you not defer discussion, because that often and most often is a, is a bilateral uh, decision between jurisdictions. But where we thought we could add some value was, okay, if you do decide to engage in a deference discussion, what are the rules of the road? How should you go about doing it from the beginning to the end? And so, what our work is is really focusing on, and, and and our hope is to have a report, and our goal, and and that's what we're working towards, is to have a final report on this in June of this year, is sort of the the processes that uh, jurisdictions should follow once they make the decision they're going to engage in a deference decision a deference decision making process. So, what does that mean? It means things like. Uh, checkpoints. When and and how often should there be checkpoints? What language should you use? What about the rules of the road if revocation is necessary? How do you go about exchanging information to get to the deference decision? And so laying out the the procedures and the processes we think has been inconsistent uh, around the world. General consistency, I would say, in many jurisdictions as we've been examining. But to have a more uh, universal, set of approaches we thought would be a very useful addition to the debate and I think if we get there what we found is that uh, a number of the of the difficulties that jurisdictions have are can be overcome through sort of having a uniform process and if we can do that I think we will have made a a very important contribution
1: do you get a sense of a timetable of when you that work might be concluded is there a hope or a goal
2: yeah well we think we think we're on target to finish by june um our hope uh and and we're working towards that but it's more than a hope i think we'll uh i feel strongly we will we will we will meet uh, the june timeline and then we will, will intend to deliver our report uh to the g20 later this year as well
1: oh great well, I know people will look forward to that, and I, I do think that's going to be a very helpful document for for market regulators around the globe. Uh, as, as far as um, you know, IOSCO, I, I I do note that some of your colleagues in the past have suggested that beyond just setting standards globally, that maybe there should be an enforcement authority that goes along with that standard-setting uh, aspect of IOSCO. Do you have a philosophy you know you came in in 2016 with some thoughts do you have have a philosophy of whether IOSCO could play a role in not only setting standards and finding consensus but then enforcing those standards around the globe
2: Well I mean you know to be fair I would say that uh, you know to some extent we 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 have that already I mean we don't call it enforcement what we call it is assessment and we have a committee that's devoted to assessing whether jurisdictions have actually implemented the standards and the recommendations and the guidance and whatnot that that iosco that IASCO issues and, and and there are no sanctions per se uh unlike in an enforcement context but there is you know the moral suasion of whether you're living up to your commitments with respect to implementing the the standards, and so it's a little bit. Uh, I hate to use the phrase, but it's a little bit of name and shame, uh, and so so there, there there is that kind of that 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 component to what IOSCO does. You know, the the, the move to a full blown enforcement sort of authority, I would say, is 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 a little bit controversial, and you know, to me, I think it would fundamentally change the nature of IASCO and. I say that because as a as a general rule Isco runs on a consensus basis. And that's in some ways what gives it its legitimacy because if you can essentially get over 100 countries around the world from the biggest to the smallest to agree on a set of standards, there you know you've actually accomplished something I think pretty pretty significant. I would also say to to move to sort of a full-blown enforcement would really uh, be a bit difficult, I think, to implement because that would create its own set of infrastructure needs, staffing, and and uh, technology needs, and things like that. So, I, you know, I have to say, I'm 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 happy with where we are, and don't have a strong desire, I would say, to move to a to a more full blown enforcement uh, posture like uh, some others have suggested we could.
1: And I do. I think you hit it on the head. Politically, I think it'd be difficult for independent agencies around the globe to look as if they're giving up some authority to a global standard setting body. I I know Congress would probably ask a lot of questions here in the United States and legislatures elsewhere um, if that were the case. So I, I do think politically it would be difficult.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. That's another big component to it as well. Yeah. Listen,
1: I, I know that you came to IOSCO in 2016. Um, you, I'm sure you had ideas, and you know you were reup last March. Um, but you know, as far as personally your agenda, what you wanted to achieve, you know, where are you? What what is what is what are the things that you wanted to try to to bring to the job and accomplish? And can you get a sense of what's on your to do list? Uh, you know, now that you're sort of halfway through your tenure.
2: Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, uh, the time just goes by, uh, just goes by very, very quickly. It's uh, it, it's really in- incredible. Well, you know, it, I did. Uh, you're right. I mean, I did come to uh, this position with a, with a few ideas about what I what I wanted to accomplish, and and, and let me just I'll, I'll lay them out for you. Um, uh, and, and they were really relatively straightforward, but but uh, important in my in my opinion. I mean. The first thing I really wanted to do was reset the, the relationship that we have as an organization with the Financial Stability Board. And what I had noticed over my time being involved in IOSCO before coming, before coming up to, to the Secretary General position was that there was a real, I would say, push and pull and, and, and almost a, 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 a big animus, if I could put it that way between the organizations. And I really wanted to cut through that and try to reset that relationship because markets and banks and banking regulators really need to work together when it comes to issues around financial stability and systemic risk. And we really can't look at it as an us versus them type of thing. At least that was my view. And I thought that there was really more we could do together than than we could sort of uh, poking at each other. So so that was the first thing I really wanted to try to do. The second thing I I wanted to try to do, and 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 this is then related to the third thing, but but let me take the second one first, which was to really revamp, if I could say it that way, the the way IOSCO went about sort of setting its st- strategy. And I mentioned you know a little earlier in our in our conversation about the the, the five year strategic direction and. It it always struck me that it seemed a little bit uh, too stale by the time you got to year three, four, and five, that what you planned to do five years ago would still be relevant. And so we we've been able to do that. And and, and we have changed the way IOSCO goes about looking at its priorities, its strategy, and 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 and, and approaching issues with a much more nimble and I think fact-based, uh, fact-based way. And then the third thing that's related to that, uh, at least in my mind, was I, I had noticed that IOSCO had been much more reluctant in, in, the, in the last few years about issuing standards and recommendations and or, or, or principles, guidance, those kinds of very, very helpful types of uh, approaches. What I was noticing is that there were a lot more uh, stock takes and toolkits and and things like this, which are certainly very helpful to members, but, but, you know, as a standard setting body, we really have to get back to the first principles. And I'm, I'm I'm very happy to say that uh, we, we've been able to do that. And I looked just last year, for instance, uh, 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 with 2019. And when I look at the, the reports that we issued, uh, more than two thirds of them had records or Guidance and uh, principles, standards, those kinds of things, and we really have moved away from just doing surveys and, and stock takes and things like that. So, so I've, uh, I, I still feel like there's some things to do on on those three areas, but at, at, from a big picture point of view, I feel like I came in to do those things, and and we're and we're well on the way to uh, to getting to fruition on all three.
1: Well, one thing I would add to that, and those are they incredibly important goals. But um, I am so thankful that you've also opened up a more, uh, a, a better dialogue with the the private sector and given more transparency of how the process works, and and opened up that that communication line with with the outside, with the markets and the participants in those markets, and to us, that has really helped uh, lift the veil of how things happen at IOSCO and also have, have allowed us to feel like we've participated and had a say in in some of the standards that are being set for the market. So to me, that has also been a, an extremely important accomplishment of yours over those those four years.
2: Oh, well, thank you. No, I, I, uh, I think that is vitally important. And I'm glad that we have been able to sort of uh, expand that conversation because having the private sector input is vital to uh, to making good policy and there's no doubt in my mind about that so so thank you for saying that
1: well we are in the midst of what many would call a crisis but you know, you, you probably have had several uh, challenges among the four years that you've been at IOSCO. what could you t- tell me what is what has been the most difficult part of the job and the most challenging part of the job to date
2: well, it it's a uh, no, it's a it's a it's a very interesting question and and uh, you know as I see this role uh, as secretary general, i I look at it really from three sort of vantage points. It, it's a combination of uh, being a manager, being an operations guy, and being a diplomat. and it it takes sort of a combination of all of those skills and probably many, many more that i that I haven't thought of, but but I would say in 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 large part those are the three buckets that I would put my what I do on a day to day basis uh, managing operating and diplomacy, and learning to balance those three on a global scale has probably been one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenges I have I have faced, and clearly when I was at Finra I sort of had to do some of that but it was on nowhere near the scale that it is with uh, with iosco and so it's reconciling differing views from major markets around the world about an approach to a particular issue while trying to balance that against you know what are the needs of the growth and emerging markets which make up a fairly significant chunk of of iosco's members and so thinking through sort of how you build coalitions and how you, uh, among board members and among, uh, and among the membership and, and and learn sort of negotiation skills among all those groups to bring together that managerial operational and diplomatic skill set uh, and you know there's there's always work to be done there but uh i feel like that's something that i work on every day and and i hope by the time i leave i will have accomplished at least some of that
1: well, ASCO has a tremendously strong uh, and incredible uh, credible brand uh, around the globe, uh, but a lot of people don't know that it's also a very small organization, um, you know, that that you don't have a tremendous amount of employees that work for you. So, you know, as chief executive of a small company, you're, like you said, you're doing everything. You're managing, you're doing operations, you're the diplomat, you're the face of the organization. But it's a credit to you that uh, you know, they, they, you're punching above your weight as a small organization. You're really doing a tremendous amount.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, you're right. People don't uh, recognize how small we are, and we're only 32 people. And uh, certainly, we leverage the membership and the expertise of the membership, and and we really couldn't be successful without that. But uh, the sort of the day to day operation is is a relatively small group of people, and. Uh, uh, they work incredibly hard. I'm I'm really uh, grateful to have everyone that uh, works with us uh, in Madrid because it's, uh, it's a team operation.
1: Well, Paul, we're getting close to the end here, but I did want to just, before we leave the COVID uh, topic, uh, I do want to ask you whether it's becoming clear to you that there are any lessons learned um, from this crisis. Um, you mentioned a few things that you're looking at on liquidity and and uh, you know uh, market uh, finance and how it's affected and and cyclicality issues. Um, but is is there anything that you're concluding uh, that uh, you specific work and work streams that you want us to tackle uh, coming out of this crisis?
2: One of the things I think we we have no choice but to tackle uh, in the near future and and near future. I mean, I mean, maybe a month or two down the road, after we get uh, a little further out of sort of crisis mode or the the acute phase, as, as some people call it, is is to do a a very thorough mapping of interconnections between banks and markets. And uh, I haven't seen anything that detailed that I think we really need to do, particularly now. In light of COVID-19 where we've seen sort of massive central bank intervention we've seen uh, issues around as you mentioned liquidity and uh, things things uh, uh, in that realm and how the connections between these various players really is playing out and and we're and we're dealing with it almost by issue by issue but I think we need perhaps the bigger picture and doing a mapping of those interconnections in the first instance will really take us a long way. And I think we'll get there. And I think we, we absolutely have to do that.
1: Well, we look forward to working with IOSCO on all of that because there's a lot of things that uh, need to be looked at. However, the good news is the markets you know, are surviving and they're doing a good job of the, the things they were meant to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited that the, we can work with you on that project moving forward.
2: Great. Well, thanks. No, we'll take you up on that. Well, listen,
1: I I know um, we're getting to the end here, but, you know, one thing I did want to ask you about, and I have been to Madrid uh, when I was at the CFTC. I was able to attend the ASCO meeting when those offices first opened. um, And I'd love to get back to Madrid. And so once this quarantine is lifted, I'm going to come visit you, Paul. You're (laughs) going to you're going to take me out on the town but as as a washingtonian uh from one washingtonian to another where where would you take me where would be the first and of course it's got to involve food and wine um uh, mm-hmm. but where where would you take me in madrid if i were coming to visit
2: well i i look forward to that day walt i think it'd be uh, i think it'd be a lot of fun and and there are i mean any n- number of places uh to go but i would uh I would take you first to two places, just just to see them, and then and then we'll get into the food. But the first place I would take you is a place called uh, Plaza Mayor, which is sort of the central square of Madrid, where so much life and activity is really uh, centered, and and all sorts of people uh, uh, congregate there. All sorts of restaurants and bars and taverns and things like that. It's 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 really a wonderful place place to go. And then the other place I would take you and and I take all my guests when I can, is a place called La, La Latina, which uh, on Sundays holds the largest flea market. I don't know if it's in the world, but definitely in Europe. And it is just sprawling. And anything that you could want to, to buy, you'll be able to buy it there. And it's really a lot of fun just to to walk from one uh, vendor to the other, and, and, and people watch, and things like that. It's really a, a really great place. So those are the places I would take you. On the food side, what I would, where I would take you is a is a famous street. It's called uh, Calle Baja. and the reason it's famous is because it's filled with tapas bars. And I think on this little tiny street there are at least fifty or more tapas bars. And I have a few favorites there, and I would take you to uh, to those. And 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 the way it works here is you go into one, you have maybe one, maybe two tapas, then you leave. You go to the next one, you have one, maybe two, and then you go to the next one. And so you do a little bit of a like a tapas crawl. And I think that'd be a lot of fun. We'd have a great time.
1: And my, my mouth is watering. So our, our family was in San Sebastian, and we were, went to a lot of Pichos bars when we were there, which is, uh-huh. the, which is the, the version of tapas up there. And uh, it's fascinating. So you, you've already won me over. I'm, I'm with you.
2: I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well,
1: listen, this has been a great and fascinating conversation. I appreciate your time and I'm sure our audience now has a better understanding of the important role that IOSCO plays and your, your role in it. So, but for now we have to end our conversation. So thank you, Paul, for being here as part of FIA Speaks.
2: It was a great pleasure. And I really, uh, I'm really grateful to you for, uh, for the time. And, uh, I look forward to, uh, to talking to you, uh, once things get back to normal and, uh, we can actually get together in person. So thanks Walt.
1: Yeah, I look forward to getting in person as well. So thanks for our audience for listening. As always, we welcome your feedback, issues and ideas at FIASpeaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening.
0: FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at FIASpeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special or consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.